today God's word uh, from book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Let's read. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain bought some of the fruits of soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also bought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked at his f- this, with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, when you have d- what you have done, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now we are under the curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can be. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thanks, Deb. Um, I saw Tom and Eric coming in. Where are they? And Evan. Oh, it's only Tom. It's only Tom now. Great to see you guys as well. <laughs> uh, and great to see. I mean, I saw a lot of your faces last week, but great to see um, some faces in, in the congregation this morning I haven't seen for a little while. Just to um, give a little bit of a spoiler, because I know you're really excited about tonight now, Matt, the man, the mystery. Um, one spoiler in terms of what I've been reading. Uh, is that one of the books, which this won't be a galloping shock to some of you, one of the books I started to read, I stress, started to read, was Calvin's Institutes. Yeah, you're really impressed with that, I can tell. And I have to, it's been a surprise to me, it's been a bit of a revelation, because I, I knew I'd love the theology, but it's, it's so warm, it's so practical. Calvin comes across as such a pastor, and he has a lot of wisdom, and speaks at the start of his book, The Institutes, 
about what biblical wisdom is, about what the Bible's message is. And here's the way he sums it up. I think I'm right in saying this is literally his first sentence in this big fat theology book he wrote centuries ago. True and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. I think what he's saying is, if you want to understand the Bible's message, then you need to grasp who God is and who human beings are. And, and boy, does our chapter this morning and does the book of Genesis give us both knowledge of ourselves, what human beings are, you know, what they're meant to be and what they actually are now, and also what God is like. And this is one of the reasons we're back here. We, we started Genesis back June, uh, what did we finish it? It was back in the middle of last year anyway. We're revisiting it now for a while as we move up to Advent. Why? Well, this is one of the reasons why, because basically it's back to basics. The book of Genesis is driving home the message about God and humanity. And the message about God and humanity we've seen in the first three chapters will be repeated in a lot of ways in the next few chapters. Now, it can get a bit tedious sometimes, can't it, when the message keeps repeating. I sometimes find myself thinking, why, Lord, why? You? Okay, I got it now. And I think sometimes what God is saying to me anyway is, no, Matt, I don't think you've got it yet, so I'm saying it again. And so some of the themes in the first part of Genesis get repeated again in this chapter. And to hear these truths about God and about us is just basic wisdom. So we come back to Genesis to recalibrate, to go back to basics, as is good to do, isn't it, from time to time. Do you remember the story so far? Those of you who came through the first three chapters of Genesis with us last year, um, in case you don't remember or in case you don't know the story so far, to try and put it in a very quick nutshell, the story of humanity started wonderfully, beautifully well. With it, gosh, it sounded Welsh then, didn't I? Beautifully well. With an unimaginably powerful and creative God making everything. And as you see him making everything at each stage of creation, he says, that's good. That's good. Until he gets to humanity, which is human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Human beings as male and female, the pinnacle of creation, made to reflect God, to image him. And he says about them that they are very good. They are meant to point to him and they're made, we are made to enjoy him. And it's, it's a lovely picture, such a lovely picture. Read it again this afternoon. But it's so lovely that it makes the next bit just incredible inexplicably quickly, Adam and Eve turn away from God. They doubt all his true words that he's spoken to them. They put themselves now at the center of the universe, which is where God should be in their minds. And they put themselves in his place. In Bible terms, they have tragically and horrifically sinned. And sin is a word that comes through in our passage this morning. As one person put it once, they've committed cosmic treason the worst form of treason there is against their beautiful, perfect, loving creator and king. So, beautiful picture, suddenly and tragically messed up because of Adam and Eve rebelling against God. But then considering the horror of Adam and Eve's sin, we're then amazed as we read through and get to chapter 3 that God, at the very moment that he justly pronounces judgment on them, for their treason, at that very moment, he 
he promises a great reversal and a great rescue. And what I believe is one of the the key verses in the whole of the book of Genesis, we read in chapter 3, verse 15, as he's speaking to the serpent, to Satan, and cursing him for what he's done in tempting Adam and Eve, we hear these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And for centuries, Christians have realized that that's not just talking about Adam and Eve and snakes. It's talking about the fact that this terrible thing that the devil, Satan, has done in drawing Adam and Eve away from God, it's going to be reversed. It's going to be all the bad things will be made untrue again, and it will happen through a descendant of Eve. And Adam and Eve, they they get it. They, They catch the hope. They believe that promise. You know that because... Adam names Eve, Eve, which means mother of the living. He he believes what God has promised. They, They catch the hope. They believe what God has said. And so that when we get to chapter four, what we find, despite all the 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 tragedy of chapter three, Adam and Eve seem to be bubbling over with hope and joy. A hope and joy they hadn't thought they'd ever feel again, I should think. In those moments immediately after their cosmic trees and when everything was black, I bet they never thought they'd hope again, but hope's starting to bubble up. So let's start to break the the passage down. There are basically three scenes here, I think. I'm not going to take them in order for reasons that will hopefully be clear by the end. Um, We're going to do scene one, scene three, and then scene two. But scene one, let's start there. Scene one, which is verses one to two. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, became a farmer. Uh, sorry, became a shepherd. And Cain worked the soil, became a farmer. But do you, do you catch the, um, the loveliness and the hope in these first few verses? If this was a, a movie or if this was a, an episode in a TV series, this one would start with soft tones and hopeful music, and probably close-ups of faces, the faces of Adam and Eve showing joy and showing expectation. All the more wonderful because the last installment was so full of, in, of disaster. Because now there's a baby on the way. Now most pregnancies, of course, are um, a source of huge excitement and huge expectancy, but nothing compared to this. The first pregnancy ever. The first human baby ever. Kind of imagine Adam and Eve sort of talking and saying, so I wonder what, how is this going to work? And what's this man we're going to give birth to going to look like? Did you notice that, by the way, when, they, when uh, she gave birth? Um, she says, with the help of the Lord, so she knows the Lord's done this. With the, the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. It's unusual to call a baby that. It's, it's the word for man, full grown man. Yeah, I can imagine them wondering before the birth, what's it going to be like? What's he going or she going to look like? The, the expectation must have been massive. Even Cain's name shows the expectation because it probably says in the footnotes in your Bible, it says in the NIV, Cain sounds like the Hebrew for brought forth or acquired. Basically, what seems to be happening here as she names Cain, she's saying, um, I've, I've got him. He's come. What's she saying there? Is she saying, um, 
Is she saying, we, we've got him at last, the first child, and he's going to be the one, the first one in a chain that leads to the promised deliverer, the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? Is that what she's saying? She's at least saying that. At bare minimum, she's saying that. But what a lot of commentators think, and I, I reckon it's true, is actually when she says, his name is Cain, which sounds like I've got him, what she's saying is, he's here. The deliverer who was promised in chapter 3, verse 15, he's come. There he is, crying on the, on the grass. That's him. There was so much expectancy in their hearts and so much faith in God's promise that quite possibly they jumped to thinking that this Cain was the deliverer, was the saviour who would crush the serpent's head. Either way, he's the expected child of promise and they and we can't wait to see now how he turns out. That's what the first few verses give us, I think. Can't wait to see how this little boy turns out. And then look how he turns out, how tragically disillusioned they're going to be. Just to pause at that point, there's a little point of application here, I think, for us. That Adam and Eve were absolutely right to trust God's promise. Where they got it a bit wrong, where they were a bit mistaken, was that they assumed they knew how God would fulfill the promise. That this little boy, Cain, would either be the deliverer or at least he would be a righteous one who would lead to the deliverer. And they were completely wrong in thinking that. That's not the way the deliverer would come. It wouldn't be through Cain, wouldn't be through Abel. It would be through yet unborn Seth, who appears later in the story. So they were right to believe God's promises. Where they went a bit too far was thinking they knew how God would fulfill those promises. Aren't we the same sometimes? God will keep every one of his promises to you, Christian. But you and I can't know all the details as to how he's going to do that. Our part, which humanly speaking feels impossible sometimes, our part is to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that the promises he's given us he will keep, even if we don't understand how. We're going to sing a song at the end. Um, I cannot tell. You know the one to the tune of Oh Danny Boy? I love that. Deb and I love that one. That's the main reason we're doing it. But I love the theme. It's, it's, a, it's a hymn about faith. I cannot tell how God's going to do X, Y, and Z. But this I know. And that's the Christian life often, isn't it? I cannot tell how God's going to get me through this. I cannot tell how he's going to keep this promise in my life and keep me and hold me fast. But this I know. His word says he will. So he will. We should copy Adam and Eve's faith. We shouldn't copy them in thinking they understand all the details. So, there are great expectations of Cain. That's the first scene. Great expectations, verses 1 and 2. But what they experienced instead, and here we jump ahead to scene 3, towards the end of the passage that was read out by a rule, Scene three, what they saw was instead a, a terrible inf- affliction, a terrible infection, a terrible disease. I did put infection on the screen. A terrible infection. Uh, in this chapter and in this scene especially, the big idea, I think, is sin. And how sin is a terrible plague. Or to put it a bit more accurately, I think, it's an, an, an horrific inherited condition we're more aware of this these days aren't we certain conditions that can be inherited that can be passed down the generations and that's what we're seeing here but it's not a physical genetic thing it's 
deeper and it's more fundamental than that. What becomes obvious is that Cain, and not just Cain, Cain has inherited this condition, this sin of his parents that becomes a lurking power in his life. If you look at verse 7, God says to him, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. He's inherited this condition. And we see that because almost immediately after hearing about the first expectant parents, the first birth, the first little human being, as we imagine the joy of Adam and Eve and the arrival of their boys, both of them, we read of the first murder. And it's a murder of a particularly terrible type because it's one brother killing the other. So older brother Cain, who's grown up with little brother Abel, Presumably, they've played together a lot. Presumably, I mean, siblings fight sometimes. Siblings don't like each other sometimes. But there is, there is always, there is usually some degree of affection and love, isn't there? They've grown up together, these boys. They've played together. They know each other so well. And yet, big brother Cain ends up luring little brother Abel out into the field. And we're not sure how it happens, but he's either bludgeoned or strangled or stabbed or all the above to death. It's, it's the stuff in it of horrific headlines, all too common unfortunately, because these are the things that the press focus in on. And because it's the stuff of horrific headlines, we can pass on from the horror quite quickly with a bit of a shrug, can't we? You know, it's terrible. But these things happen. It happens, but it's rare and it's limited to the monsters out there. And when it comes to me, you see, this is the way I naturally think, and I think it's very much the way our society thinks today in the UK. When it comes to me, all the memes and all the mantras are true. A phrase that I, we've been hearing for years now, but I'm hearing it a lot recently, a relentless drumbeat, this phrase, I am enough. I am enough. Um, I googled it, actually, and... Um, there's a, there's a lady called Deb who's got a whole Pinterest page on this, on the theme, the meme of I am enough. I don't think it's this Deb. It's, no, it's not Deb. Um, I'm glad to hear that. Um, because on that page and with all the memes she's got pinned to a Pinterest page, you've got things like a letter, Dear me, I am beautiful. I am worthy. I am abundant. I am enough just as I am. I am enough. Now, don't get me wrong, in that meme, I am enough. When you're saying to somebody, you love me, look, you're enough. Some, there's often good motives in this, and there are some good things being said. If you're talking to someone who's been uh, abused, been lied to, been gaslighted, and been told horrible things about themselves, I think it's good to say to that person, do you know what, for me, you're enough. Don't listen to their lies. You're cared for. So in that sense, nothing wrong. But do you know what? This idea of I am enough when you go online, it's, it's metastasized into something that so many people believe now and they've made it an absolute. They really do believe I am enough. And I think, I think Cain would agree. I think he'd have it on his Pinterest. I am enough. Well, one of them said, uh, I am abundant. I am enough just as I am. I am divine. And to be honest, that's pretty honest. 
Because you take this I am enough thinking to an extreme and that's what it's saying. It's saying I am God. And do you know what? It's terribly, terribly dangerous and a symptom of sin. Because if you really believe all those things that you're writing in that letter to dear me, what you're saying is you don't need a saviour. Why would you need a saviour if all those things are true? There's no such thing as sin if all those things are true. But that's what our culture believes in is preaching. Don't listen to that preaching. Don't listen to it. Yes, pick out some of the good stuff that's in there and the good reasons it's been said. But just don't, don't just believe it and accept it. It's anti-gospel. On this definition, you know, if it's really true that we say I am enough, on that definition, I should be happy for the whole world to see projected up on the screen behind me every single thing I've ever done and thought and felt. And I don't know anybody who'd be prepared for that to happen if it were possible for that to happen. You know, my secret inner thoughts and plans, my frustration, my lust, my anger, my rage, the murder in my heart. You know, we look at Cain and think, I wouldn't kill my brother. Jesus said when he was preaching on this stuff, you murder someone in your heart, you've, you've pretty much murdered them. The reality the Bible shows us is that no one is worthy, but we are born instead in this sinful condition, our hearts bent away from God. David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. He knew that there was a sense in which he was a sinner before he was born, before he could commit a sin. He's nonetheless a sinner. Romans 5, um, we, we read these words. Romans 5 verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. One of the things Paul is saying there in Romans 5 is that when Adam sinned, and notice he says Adam, not Eve, and that's because Adam was created first and he's the head of the human race. When Adam sinned, there's a sense in which we all sinned. We didn't exist yet. We hadn't committed a sin yet, but we all sinned. Why? Because he's the head of the race. Because when he sinned and Eve sinned, they brought us all down into ruin. This is the inherited condition that we've inherited from Adam and Eve. And the symptoms are wanting to rule our own lives in God's place, wanting to find joy in anything but God himself, living by the conviction that we are enough and we therefore don't need God. And I, I think Cain would agree with a lot of that, a lot of these memes and mantras. I am enough, God, so my offering should be enough. This is me, loud and proud, Accept me for what I am, world. Accept me for what I am, God. And that's utterly, utterly not the Bible's picture of human beings. We are lost, utterly lost, turned in on ourselves, turned away from God. In ourselves, we are not enough. We are not enough. But, but, we are loved. Cain, the brother murderer, was loved. And here's where we get to scene two. Our third point, our second scene. Moving back to the, the center of the account, verses three to seven, where we've got this, this happening of uh, Cain and Abel going to offer sacrifices to bring their offerings. And here we see the compassion of God. See, Genesis shows us the awful state we're in, but also that the holy God is relentlessly merciful and compassionate. Did you notice that though God sees the dark depths of Cain's angry and jealous heart, he talks with him. I love this. 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, verse 4, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. He's livid. He's fuming. And his face was downcast, completely in a strop, with God. Definition of sin, isn't it? And if I'm God at that point, I'm walking away and judging the guy. But what do we read? Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's wonderful, isn't it? God talks with him. He warns him. God even pleads with Cain, don't do this. By the way, this, this discussion, I don't know if you realize this, this is probably taking place in what is basically the first ever church service. You know, we've had the first pregnancy and the first birth. It's probably the first ever church service. The word for offering there, the offerings that they bring, is the word that comes up again and again and again, all the way through the Old Testament, especially the first five books, speaking of the offerings and sacrifices that the Israelites would bring to God. God gave them instructions as to how they could approach him in relationship and how they could worship him. He told them how to bring offerings. Now, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel haven't had the law of Moses yet, but presumably somewhere along the way, Adam and Eve have picked up the fact that this is the way to relate to God. This is the way to come into his presence. And they've told Cain and Abel this. And so what we seem to have here is the first recorded, organized worship in history. So this happens in church. Cain's fuming at God, jealous of his brother, starting to think about killing his little brother, and it's happening in church. And God's speaking to him and dealing with him. Isn't this one of the reasons we come together as church? Isn't it one of the reasons we spend a big chunk of time? Sometimes very big, depending on who's speaking, but we spend a big chunk of time gathering around the Bible together to hear what God says. Because we need to hear from him this morning as we come to worship, to give him our praise and to hear what he has to say say to us God still does this today are we listening when we come together to worship and he speaks to us he says to Cain the sin in your heart is crouching and it'll overwhelm you the sin in your heart will keep you from me forever if it's not dealt with if you do what is right will you not be accepted literally it's if you do what is right will you not be lifted up so it could just mean accepted as most translations put it or Possibly it means, if you do what is right, will you not be lifted up? He's basically saying, because we read there that Cain's face fell when he was in a strop with God. Basically saying, Cain, you look miserable. You're bringing these offerings to me, in theory. You look miserable. Think about what's going, in your heart, going on in your heart. If you do the right thing, you, you'll, you'll be lifted up. You'll smile again. There's a way for you to be joyful, Cain. There's a way for you to be happy. I'm offering it to you. There's a way to avoid this sin in your heart killing you. To stop this sin in your heart permanently separating you from me. There's a way to joy. What's that way? What does God mean when he says, if you do what is right? Does it mean bring a better sacrifice? That's what some people think. Was Abel accepted because his sacrifice was better? Well, it seems it might have been better as in better quality because we're told that Abel brings something from the firstborn of his flock. Whereas Cain just brings some produce. It seems that Cain brought the best and the first of what he had raised, so Abel did, whereas Cain 
Cain just brings some of his stuff to bring to God. He's just ticking a box. So there's probably some truth in that, but the, the, the importance of that is not that Abel was accepted because his, sac- his sacrifice was a better quality and Cain was rejected because his wasn't. No, no, it's because those offerings show what's going on in their hearts. They, the offerings kind of act like a spiritual heart echocardiogram. They, they, they both rock up to church and essentially Cain and Abel both do the same things. But whilst Cain is quietly seething and starting to contemplate the first murder, Abel is gratefully worshipping because Abel's heart is filled with faith. And in case you think I'm reading too much between the lines, let me uh, quote to you the inspired writer of Scripture in Hebrews 11. You may remember this. Hebrews 11, the hall of fame, the list of people who had faith. And we read in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, by faith. Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks to us here this morning, even though he is dead, because his life speaks of faith. The difference between the two of them is not in the offering as such. It's that the offerings show where their hearts are at. And Abel trusts God. Abel had heard about the promise that God had made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, He believed it and he trusted it and his life showed it. His heart, and he's a sinner too, as much as Cain, but his heart is turned towards God in grateful trust. And here's the wonderful thing about God and the wonderful thing about the gospel. It's not true that I can say I am enough just as I am. You know, as I come to this God, I can't come to him saying, I am enough, just as I am. But I can come just as I am. I, I don't have to try and tidy myself up first. I can't. I can't come to God and say, here I am, just as I am, God. Take me as I am. You've got to. No, I can't say that to the holy God. But I can come to him just as I am when I come in faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Abel came to worship because he believed that God would reverse the curse of Genesis 3 and restore the paradise of chapter 1, and so his believing heart overflowed with gratitude. We need to ask as we come to worship together on Sundays, what's going on in our hearts as we come to worship? Because people who have faith in God, who have faith in Jesus, certainly can be tempted to the way of Cain. Their minds on other evil things, anger, criticisms, hurts if you believe the gospel promise then you and i will want to come in grateful faith and praise when we gather together and so it's good it's important it's vital to examine our hearts when we come together to worship on a sunday but the big idea is this contrast between the hearts of cain and abel abel uh, this little ditty was going through my head sorry this isn't really high poetry but this helped me this week How would I try and sum up this section, this key truth in this passage? Abel knew he brought nothing to the table, but Cain thought he did. Abel knew he brought nothing to the table, but Cain thought he did. And that's how you sum up the difference between them. Abel brought nothing to the table. If you are going to be right with God, you have to start by realizing that. You can't bring anything to the table. Come just as you are, yes, but you don't bring anything of value. You don't say to God, here's, right God, here's what I think I can bring to the table. You can bring nothing. 
because your heart is like Cain's and so is mine. Your heart is like Abel's by nature and so is mine. But will my heart be like Abel's in that I will trust in God and God alone and his promises? Cain's mistake was that he thought he and his offerings were enough, but God looks on the heart for faith. Why? Because faith is relying on God totally. That's why it's so dangerous to see to think you bring anything to the table. Yeah, I'll put faith in God. I'll put faith in Jesus' death on the cross for me. But I bring these things too to, to add to the package. No, don't. Let go of them. Bring nothing. Come just as you are and just trust in God and his promises. Your Sunday best and your respectability and your charitable works won't do it. This is the dangerous truth in every street, in every family, in every Sunday congregation. You have two types of people, basically. The ones relying on themselves, who feel their best is enough, that their best is good enough. The ones who say, I am enough. And then on the other hand, the other hand all the other sinners relying on God and saying, I am not enough, but Jesus is. Grateful that God has given his best for them. I'd say, I'm not enough, but Jesus is. In case you're thinking, where on earth is Jesus in there? Matt, I don't see the, the name Jesus. Well, we're going to see this as we travel through, as we saw in the first three chapters. But just in that word offering, you know, this is the drumbeat that keeps coming up in the Old Testament. Offering, 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 sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Why? Because that's how we put right with God? No, because it's pointing forward to the one, the seed of the woman, the descendant of Eve. Who would be the one to deliver and crush the serpent's head. The perfect one who never sinned who died for sinners like you and me, the one who is enough, who died in our place. That's what the word offering points to. That's what the whole of Genesis points to. The son of God dying for me. I'm not enough, but God in his compassion sent one for me who is. And when I believe, God sees him and not my sin. Can I just say as I close, maybe there's someone here this morning and you've been thinking in recent months, um, or you'll be thinking this morning as I'm preaching, and maybe you'll be thinking in the weeks to come, you know, there's, there's a lot being said, um, and I'm following some of it, but I don't follow all the terminology. I'm not sure I get all the theological stuff you're talking about. Can I just say that's okay? Because Abel knew so much less in terms of content than we do. But he knew God's promise, and he knew God was faithful, and he trusted God. So if you know that you're a sinner like Cain and Abel and Seth and everybody else in the Bible and everybody in this room, if you know that and you know you need a saviour and you come to God just as you are, knowing that you're not enough but believing that Jesus is enough because he died in your place, you've got it. You've grasped the gospel. You've got what you need to know that when you believe it, believe it and lean on him, you know that paradise restored, heaven that we talked about last week, is yours and cannot be taken away. You, you can sing this hymn we're going to sing in just a minute. I cannot tell X, Y, Z. I cannot understand all the things maybe been said in this place, but this I know. I'm a sinner. Jesus came for sinners and he's enough. If you know that, you've got it. Believe it and follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're here in Genesis chapter 4. Just as you were in chapter 3, and just as chapter 5 in some way we know will point forward to you, thank you that you're here. 
Thank you that you're here. Literally, you're in this place this morning receiving our worship and praise. Thank you that we can come to you exactly as we are. And thank you that when God looks at us, Lord Jesus, once we put our trust in you, when God the Father looks at us, then once we've trusted in you, there is a sense in which he says, you're enough. Because now when he looks at us, when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sin, but he sees Jesus. Help us to rejoice, Lord, in these foundational truths of our faith as we sing together now. Amen.